morning. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. As we continue our study through this gospel, Matthew chapter 13, while you're turning there, I did want to say a quick thing about my trip to Indiana last weekend. Most of you know I serve as a regional leader in our denomination. And so this last weekend, my family traveled with me out to one of our churches in Winona Lakes, Indiana. We're from Indiana, so we, we were going back to God's country. It was, it was wonderful. Cornfields, flatness, less clouds than Northeast Ohio, at least. We got that going. That was that. Here's something we believe in Sovereign Grace Churches. We believe healthy pastors lead healthy churches. Healthy pastors lead healthy churches, and so one of the things I did at the Winona Lakes Church was I led the pastors through a team health assessment, and I'm happy to report they are doing really well. It's a good group of pastors there. Uh, They're a great group of guys. Uh, We really enjoy getting to know their wives, and I was just struck by the, the grace and the humility that marks all of them. They were so warm and friendly to us. Uh, they had this great lunch for us after the service, and they were all sitting around talking with us forever. And then they kind of they all walked us out to the front of the church as we left, and like everybody was standing, you know, men holding their wives, waving us goodbye, and it was just this like picturesque moment of of the sweet partnership and family connection we have with. Uh, other churches. And so I wanted to report we had a really good trip. Jenny and I got to spend time with friends and our kids made new friends with their kids. And we even got some ideas from their church about what we might do, uh, some things we could do here at this church. So I wanted to thank you for praying for us. Thank you for releasing us and sending us to go and serve and strengthen other churches. Uh, It's all for the glory of God. So thank you for that. All right, turning to God's word now, we're in Matthew chapter 13. And for those of you taking notes, our sermon title is The Kingdom and the World. The Kingdom and the World. And I want to begin um, in an interesting place. It was interesting to me that Bert opened praying for the upcoming elections and for our political leaders because I wanted to start in a somewhat similar place. Now, you may have heard of the phrase that's been kicked around the last few years, Christian nationalism. Uh, Christian nationalism. It's a current hot topic. It seems like everybody's talking about it. Everyone from conservative Christians to secular society. Uh, just this last week, I looked it up, and uh, the Associated Press, Newsweek, and PBS all ran stories with Christian nationalism in the headlines. Uh, many people are afraid of it. Other people are in love with it. Uh, what are we to do with it? Uh, Meet the Press on NBC News recently aired a segment on Christian nationalism, uh, talking about its rise in America today, and they featured Douglas Wilson and uh, his church and what they're doing, which some of you are a follower, a follower of. And so... It's really, it's an interesting, it's a current hot topic, everyone's talking about it. It's one of those things where like everyone starts talking about it, but no one's really defined it well, so everyone seems to be talking past each other. And so people are, you know, (laughs) criticizing what other people are saying, well, I would never believe that. And then people are saying, you know, like, I'm all for it. And other people are like, you know, why, how could you possibly want to baptize the nation? Well, that's not what I'm saying. And so everyone seems to be talking past each other and people are trying to, define it, and I think that's a worthy conversation to be had. Here's my take. Here's my hot take. PBS, meet the press, here it is. My hot take is we should want our country to be guided by Christian principles and undergirded by Christian truth. We should want to exert as much in Christian influence as we can 
in the political realm. And we should work hard for this. And yet, simultaneously, we must not make the mistake of thinking that something like heaven on earth can be accomplished through the political system. When we see political setbacks, that should never tank our soul. Our political endeavors are important, but they're not more important than they really are. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So here we find the disciples, and they are itching for a kingdom on earth. Uh, one with them in charge, or at least with men believing like them in charge. They wanted to throw off Roman occupation, and they wanted to take back Israel. They were all wearing, if I can say, MAGA hats, make Israel great again. Can I say that? Is that too far? I don't think so. But Jesus answered them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has six fixed by his own authority. In other words, Jesus was saying, guys, now is not the time for that. Now is not the time for that kind of kingdom. Now is not the time for heaven on earth. That comes later. I believe we should want our country to be guided by Christian principles and undergirded by Christian truth. We should seek to exert as much Christian influence as we possibly can in the political realm. But, as J.C. Ryle said of the parable we are studying today, it is eminently calculated to correct the extravagant expectations in which Christians might indulge. We are looking at a parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and this parable is a of particular importance in our present day. Now, before I read our passage, I need to point out that first Jesus tells this parable to the crowds, and then later when he's alone with his disciples, Jesus explains to them what he means. So he tells it to them, then later he explains it to them, and then it's interrupted by a couple of other parables in between. We're going to skip the parables in between and come back to them next week. So, our text this morning is Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and then we'll skip down to 36 through 43 for the explanation. I invite you to follow along and give careful attention as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. 
The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of His Word. To set this in context here, Matthew 13, or this parable in Matthew 13, is the, or sorry, Matthew 13 is the third of Jesus' five major discourses in this gospel. It's the third of five blocks of his teaching that Matthew records, and this one is often called the parabolic discourse. It's often called the parabolic discourse because it is a collection of parables. The word parable comes from the Greek word para, which is a prefix that means alongside something. So for instance, a a paralegal is someone who works alongside a lawyer. Para means alongside something, and balo means to cast or to throw, like you cast a ball. So parabolo, or parable as we say it in English, literally means to cast alongside something else. To cast alongside something else. And the idea is Jesus is taking stories, Jesus is taking word pictures, and he's casting them alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth, in order to make light, make understanding to that truth. Parables are teaching aids. They illustrate, illustrate truths for us. A common description of a parable is that it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Matthew 13 is a collection of seven parables, and they all have to do with Jesus' kingdom. They all have to do with the essence and the expanse, the substance and the spread of his kingdom. And here is how we got here in Matthew's gospel. A big part of Matthew's gospel is aimed at presenting Jesus as the king of kings. Presenting Jesus as the son of God, the Messiah, the heir of David's throne. And so in chapter 1 we saw how Jesus is, by genealogy, the true heir of David. Then in chapter 2, the wise men, the Magi, pay homage to him as the newborn king. In chapter 3, John the baptizer preaches the coming of the kingdom and prepares the people for the coming of that king. In chapter 4, Jesus defeats Satan, conquering the kingdom of darkness. In chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks with the authority of a king, declaring his will and declaring his laws. In chapter 8 through 10, he demonstrates his kingly authority as he heals the sick and casts out demons, stills the storms, and forgives sinners. And then finally, in chapters 11 and 12, what we have been studying, uh, Israel finally rejects Jesus as king. For centuries, they'd waited for him. For centuries, they'd wanted a Messiah. For centuries, they'd waited for the coming of God's kingdom. But the king came, God sent forth his son, Jesus came, and they rejected him as king. So the question coming out of chapter 12 is, if Jesus came to bring the kingdom... If he came to usher into the rule and reign of God, but God's people refused him, if they rejected his kingdom, what next? 
what next? What happens now? How will Jesus bring his kingdom if his people reject his king? And that's what chapter 13 is answering. Jesus is telling us through parables that his kingdom will spread through the hearts of men. It is a kingdom in this world, but it is not a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom that will start small, but it will grow expansive. These are the secrets of the kingdom, the mysteries of his kingdom that Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 13. So as we look at our parable today on the wheats and the weeds, there are two things Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom. Two things about his kingdom he wants us to know. The first is it's here, but it's opposed. And the second is it's here, but not fully. The first thing Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom in this parable is Christ's kingdom is here, but opposed. This is something we need to understand about Jesus' kingdom. It's here, but it's challenged. It's here, but it's resisted. Look again with me at verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but then his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. Now look down with me at verses 37 through 39. The one who sows the good seed, Jesus explains, is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. This parable illustrates the truth that Christ's kingdom is here. It has arrived through his preaching, through his presence. Jesus explains in this parable that he is right now in this world planting the seeds of his kingdom. So his kingdom is here, but it stands opposed. It is challenged by a rival kingdom. An enemy has sown weeds among his wheat. And until the harvest, until the end of the age, these two kingdoms will grow up together. They will occupy the same space, and they will strive for supremacy there. Now, a lot of Christians use this parable to illustrate the condition of the church, uh, to illustrate the condition of church this side of heaven, that there is uh, right now in the church both true believers, the wheat, and false professors, the weeds. And that's true, but that's not what this parable teaches. The field in this parable is not the church, Jesus says, it's the world. Look again with me at verse 38. Jesus says, the field is the world. The word Jesus uses here is cosmos, which means to order something. Uh, We get the word cosmology from it, which means the knowledge of the order of things, or the knowledge of the created order of things. Interestingly, we also get the word cosmetic from this, uh, which happens to actually mean to order your face. Something to think about when you're putting on your makeup. You're ordering your face. The point is, the field is the world, not the church. Jesus is scattering his good seed the world over. But this enemy, the devil, slips in and does the exact same thing. Under the cover of night, while the servants are asleep, he slips in and sows his weeds among the wheat. 
The wheat referred to here, or the weed referred to here, is something called darnel, which is a kind of counterfeit weed. Uh, when they're young, they look like wheat. Uh, they look harmless enough at first, but what happens under the surface is their roots get intertwined with that of the weeds. So that when they mature, when both grow up and get big, and you can discern the difference, by then it's too late. By then the roots are all entangled, and you cannot pull up the wheat or weeds without also pulling up the wheat. And this is exactly what we see happening all around us every day. Good and evil all tangled. Wheat and weeds growing up side by side. And Jesus tells us that's the way it's going to be until the harvest. This is the way it's going to be until the judgment. Christ's kingdom is here, but it stands opposed. This is the way it is right now. And this explained a lot for the disciples in Jesus' day. This explained to them the mixed response that Jesus received. Some believed, many did not. This explained to them the malice of the leaders who opposed his kingdom. There is an enemy seeking to devour them. This parable explained a lot to the disciples in Jesus' day, but it also explains a lot for us in our day as well. Have you ever asked yourself this question? If the gospel is such good news, then why doesn't everyone believe it? If the gospel is such good news, why doesn't everybody get in on this? The answer is because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Because Christ's kingdom stands opposed. You might have asked, if Jesus' kingdom is here, then why after 2,000 years is there still so much evil in this world? The answer is, he has an adversary working for just as long who is sowing weeds among all his wheat. Why does the cause of Christ struggle like it does? Why do churches and missionaries, why do Christians experience persecution and hardship and trial? Well, because for now, even though we've been brought into Christ's kingdom, we still have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. 1 Peter 5.8 We have an enemy and he has a strategy. He comes alongside the work of Christ and seeks to corrupt it. God ordains government, and Satan comes along and incites leaders to seize power for themselves. God provides what we need, Satan seduces us to consume it with greed. God created marriage for safety and intimacy and multiplication, and Satan whispers, why wait when you can have instant gratification without commencement and without responsibility of children? God blesses sex, and Satan promotes lust. God gives us food for nourishment and joy. Satan incites us to indulge ourselves. Whatever God ordains and blesses, Satan comes along looking to spoil and to wreck it. He aims to pervert and destroy it. His very name means adversary. And as long as he is able, he'll keep on sowing weeds among God's wheat. So on the one hand... 
This means we should temper our expectations. What do we do with this? Well, it means in one respect, we ought to temper our expectations. As far as Christ's kingdom spreads, as much seed as he sows, as much good as is done in his name, still, in this age, there will always be weeds growing up among the wheat. Christ's kingdom is here, but opposed. And so returning to the realm of politics where we started, of course we want people who love righteousness and justice to lead us. Now the midterm elections are fast approaching and we should do our homework. We should know the candidates and we should consider the issues. This really does matter. But we should also remember there will always be weeds in this life. In this age, there will always be lawless politicians and crooked policies. So our hope for righteousness can never be tied to a candidate or a constitution or a country. At least not an earthly one. On the one hand, this parable tempers our expectations, but on the other hand, it excites our expectations. This parable moderates some of our our expectations as relates to this world and this culture, but it multiplies our expectations in regards to or related to conversions. This is where I see the amazing grace of God in this parable. In Jesus' explanation, he says that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So they belong to Satan. They are his people. Now turn back with me, or look back with me, to chapter 12 for just a second. Look back at Matthew chapter 12 at verses 28 and 29. Here Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house? In other words, Jesus is saying, how can, how can you enter that strong man's house, Satan, the ruler of this world, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying here is that he has come to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. He has come to take what Satan claims as his and make it Jesus's. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil by seeking and saving the lost, by giving his life for his people, by transferring those from darkness into likeness. What I'm talking about is he takes weeds and he makes them into wheat. Jesus takes weeds and he makes them into wheat. So why hasn't Jesus begun that end-time harvest yet? Why hasn't he commenced judgment on evil yet? Because he's still working to transform weeds into wheat. This is what Jesus is doing right now, the world over. He's transforming bad seed like we all were once, and he's transforming it into good seed. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked. This is bad seed. This is weeds. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus takes weeds and makes them into wheat. That is the business Jesus is all about. That is how Jesus is advancing his kingdom. It's here, it stands opposed, but Jesus is taking his seed, his good seed, that's the sons of the kingdom, that's you and me. He's spreading them throughout the world so that we can preach the gospel, so that we can be the light of the world, and so that Jesus can take that good news and transform weeds into wheat. And that's where our hope and passion and energy and life should be all wrapped up into. Jesus is binding the strong man and plundering his house. He is turning weeds into wheat, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the grace of God so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ's kingdom is here, but opposed. And point number two, Christ's kingdom is here, but not fully. Christ's kingdom is here, but not fully. His kingdom is here in this world. He's planting the seeds all over the earth. His kingdom really is now, but it's also not yet. It really is here, but it's not fully here. When it fully comes, Jesus says, there will be a complete and final separation of the wheat and the weeds. For now, they grow up together. But when the harvest comes, they will be completely separated. There'll be no more mixing. There'll be no more growing together, the wheat and the tares. When Christ's kingdom fully comes, there will only be two outcomes, two final destinies, two eternities, and no third way. There will be no third alternative. It will be one or the other. The subject of one kingdom to glory and the subject of the other to damnation. I don't know if you got this when I read it a few minutes ago, but verses 40 through 42 are, in my mind, one of the most graphic and explicit accounts of the final judgment in all of Scripture. I mean, they make you tremble. Let's look at these verses again. Verses 40 through 42. Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We understand Jesus is talking about hell here, a place of eternal separation from God, a place of anguish, a place of torment, a place, Jesus says here, of 
of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of unspeakable suffering and eternal punishment. I mean, some people like to think that, um, you know, after we die, either you go to heaven or, or hell is, is more kind of just, you're actually obliterated. It's just, you're gone. You're just done. Because how could, have, how could God let people suffer like that? It's a hard thing to come to terms with the justice of God. But Jesus is very clear here. Hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sinclair Ferguson tells a story. A number of years ago, a princess of England was coming out of a church service, and she paused to speak with the dean of the cathedral. She asked him, Is it true there is a place called hell? The dean answered, Madame, the scriptures say so. The Christian people have always believed so, and the Church of England confesses so. To this she replied, Then in God's name, why do you not tell us so? Like this dean, we may be shy to talk about hell with other people. I actually Googled this week how many people or how many uh, Americans believe in hell. And there's a few research things, but there was an article towards the top uh, written by an unbeliever. It was this whole article just saying, no matter what the statistics tell you, Christians cannot truly believe in hell. Because if they did, they would not stop warning us about it. We can be shy and even afraid to speak about hell, to let that reality inform how we think and act and talk to other people. But Jesus isn't. Jesus is not afraid. Love compelled him to speak. Love compelled him to tell us about hell, and love compelled him to endure it for us. That's what happened at the cross. There he was pierced for our transgressions. There he was crushed for our iniquities. There he was chastised for our, pun- or for our iniquities. And that is what brought us peace. On the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God for us, forsaken by God for our sake, so that hell not only stands as one of the destinies, but heaven and glory stands as the other. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe what he teaches about heaven and hell? He would say to you, he who has ears, let him hear. The future of those who reject Jesus is one of final and irreversible judgment. But the future of those who receive Jesus, who accept him as their Lord and Savior, is one of spectacular glory. 
Jesus says in verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Someday, we who follow Jesus will shine like the noonday sun. We will shine with a righteousness that is not our own. It'll be Jesus' righteousness, an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that becomes ours through faith in Him. And on that day, that day He returns in glory. On that day, He will bring His kingdom in full. And on that day, we will shine like the noonday sun, reflecting back to Him His own glory. <clears throat> on that day, <clears throat> excuse me, on that day, as Handel's Hallelujah Chorus proclaims, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, forever and ever. Lord of lords, forever and ever. And He shall reign. I wish I could sing it for you. And He shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. He shall reign. That day is coming, and what a day that will be. I'm looking forward to that. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to a day that's going to happen later this week, in some sense, because later this week I'm going to turn 40 years old. It's hard to believe. <clears throat> I know, many of you thought I was, I was well past 60, but I'm, I'm only 40. It's a surprise, right? It's hard to believe to me, and my community group marked the occasion at our last meeting by graying their hair and pretending to be old people and talking to me about how I was over the hill. Well, in light of this passage, in light of the certain future Jesus tells me about right here, I've decided I'm happy to be one year closer to glory. I've decided I'm, I'm happy to be even one day closer to glory. This life is so short. And I know we say this all the time, but the older you get, the more you realize it, right? Time flies by. And I want to return to an illustration I've used before, but that I think is helpful. This life is like a dot. It's like a dot, just a little dot. It's just a dot, and then it's over. But extending out from that dot is a long line that stretches on into eternity. The little dot is your earthly life, and that long line is your eternal life. And that dot, it's really tiny. I mean, you may get 70 or 80 years, but don't presume upon that. A few get a, a little bit more, more of us get a lot less. We don't know how big our dot is, but regardless how big our dot is, it's still just a dot. But everyone's line is exactly the same. It stretches on forever. And the question is, are you living for the dot, or are you living for the line? Are you majoring on the things of this life, or are you majoring on the things of the life that is to come? If what Jesus teaches here is true, and it, is, it either it is or it isn't, if what he teaches here is true, 
then it's really true, and we should live in light of it. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now you can pause there and say, well, that's great. That sounds good. I'm going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That'll be wonderful. Can't wait for that day. Aren't we? I mean, we're all looking forward to that, right? We're all, we all want that. We all want to be transformed into glory. We all want new and better bodies. We all want to have the glory of Jesus Christ reflected in our eyes. We all want that. But then he adds, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The transformation then starts now. That transformation that we're looking forward to, we work it out now. John wrote that First Peter or First John chapter three verses two and three. I have to think. I mean, John was here when Jesus told the parable we're studying. John was in the room when he explained it. I have to think John was reflecting something on what Jesus was talking about. Us being shining like the noonday sun. Jesus, John's saying, it's not yet happened yet. It's going to be amazing. But that starts to touch how we live now. That future makes a claim on us now. Are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? Are you living for this life or are you living with an eye on the life that is to come? Friends, it's the certain future that Jesus holds out to us, which he has secured for us, that ought to be the defining influence in our thinking now. It's the defining influence in our attitudes now, in our perspective, and in our priorities now. This future is calling us to be a people, not of grumbling, not of worry, not of despair, even in the face of our enemy and the work of his opposing kingdom. Instead, it is calling us to be a people who are patient, who live self-controlled lives, who are working to bear fruit for the kingdom, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, and who exude a confident hope only and always in Jesus Christ, only and always in the coming King, only and always in our loving Savior, always and only in our God. So just to conclude, to bring this all together here, I was reminded this week of a story about certain prisoners of war in World War II who managed to construct a, a radio from pieces of scrap and trash that they collected. And they would listen in on the radio, and one day the radio announced to them that the war was over. Victory had been won. But it wasn't to them yet. For four more days, they had to keep working in that camp, keep working as prisoners, waiting for soldiers to show up, waiting for that victory to fully reach them. For four days, they knew victory was certain and it would soon arrive. They knew this, but during those four days, Nothing in their outward circumstances changed. Nothing outside of them changed, but everything inside of them changed. Nothing in their circumstances changed, but everything in their attitude changed. 
Now they could endure with patience. Now they could bear their hardships for just a little longer. Now they could have joy even in the face of their enemy. And friends, if they could, how much more can we? Listen, this is our radio. This is our radio. It tells us victory has been attained. And the kingdom is coming. Victory has been attained, and the kingdom is coming. So how much more should we in this life patiently endure? How much more should we labor with hope? How much more should we rejoice now in the victory Christ has already won and take strength from it, even if for now his kingdom stands opposed? What was it Bert read to us this morning? Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And all God's people say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the secrets of the kingdom revealed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and illuminated to us by your Holy Spirit. This is a game changer. This resets our minds and gives us eyes to see in ways that we can't see with physical eyes, but we can see with eyes of faith what is really going on all around us. And with those eyes of faith, we are enabled to live differently in this life. We are a people of certain hope. We are a people assured of certain victory. Not by us, and not our endeavors, not necessarily our political candidates or our causes, but our Christ. Our King is victorious. And all our hope is in you, Jesus. So we pray that you would help us to work right where you plant us. You have sown the seeds of your kingdom all across this world, and we are those seeds. So Lord, help us to be fruitful wherever you have planted us. Help us to have fruit 30, 60. We pray for a hundredfold, Lord. And may it all be to your glory, and may your kingdom come, and your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name.